Greetings, friends. I want to talk today about the idea of a moral paradox, about this idea of vengeance on the vengeance, the paradoxology of life. The great Niels Bohr told us that the opposite of a factual truth is a factual falsehood. But the opposite of a profound truth may often be another profound truth, perhaps even more profound. This idea of paradoxes comes to play in life when we talk about this idea of servant leadership, that you must serve in order to lead, that also comes forth in these ideas of you must die to yourself, you really truly live, that if you want to go up, you must go down, you must descend before you ascend. All these sorts of paradoxical statements play out in life. And it reminds me of what we saw in the 1300s literature in Florence, Italy, this idea of vengeance on the vengeance and how this came about was this idea of the grandiose divinity of the Roman Empire. This is about the time the, the words the Holy Roman Empire began in play. And I think if you could go back, go back to 63 BC, when you see the, the general Pompey ordered to go and take over Jerusalem. And he institutes Roman rule around this time, that there's Roman taxation, there's Roman uh, polytheistic types of perspective coming from all other places around the Asian and Oriental uh, countries nearby. All these influences flood in Jerusalem and really take hold of the Jewish tradition that is a people that is very against enslavement, very against entitlement, very against uh, this idea of being the citizens of another. And you find this at play when you enter into the, the biblical time of the New Testament around zero, around three BC, when you find the this interesting conversation between the Jews and their Roman occupiers. And there's been multiple times of Jewish revolt, but the Romans have, for the most part, allowed localized Jewish leadership to control the day-to-day -day activities. They, they just didn't understand the monotheistic culture that the Jews had. And so there would generally be a, uh, a Herod or someone like that that would be localized to represent the crown, represent the Roman Empire to Israel. But there was a little bit of autonomy there. And so you see this play out when the Jews demand for the crucifixion of Christ. And the way that that happens is that the Jews bring Christ before the Roman leadership, Pontius Pilate in this case, and demand for him to be executed. Pontius Pilate interviews him, says, I find no guilt in this man, send him away. And the Jews persist. And in order to avoid another uprising, yet again, Pontius Pilate says, look, I'll do whatever you want to do. Like, if you want to let this guy go, I'll let this guy go. If not, we'll, we'll do it. And so finally, the Jews persist, a threat through crowd, through mob rule. And the Romans, through influence of the Jews, the Jewish leadership specifically at that time, crucify Christ. Now, historically, there's been people on occasion that would blame the Jews for the crucifixion and the death of Christ, that the Jews murdered Christ. I don't think it would be something like that necessarily, but I think it might be something closer to the Jewish leaders had Christ put to death. I think that's that's a very fair historical statement. Now, when we read the, the text of Josephus, Josephus has this idea coming about around 70 AD. This would be about 35 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, where he comes in and says that there's something that happens. Christ, Christ makes this, this profound statement that the 
not one brick would be left on top of another, not one stone on top of another of the, the temple. He, he forecasts, he foretells the, the destruction of the second temple. Now, this is the second temple, so that means the first one's been destroyed, right? So the second temple is destroyed in approximately 70 AD when the great Roman general Titus, uh, through indirectly the, the, the command of Nero, and then through uh, his successor, goes and besieges Jerusalem because there's another Jewish uprising in place. There's a Jewish revolt that begins in 66 AD. Now, Titus besieges Jerusalem about the time of Passover, and he allows all the migrants, all the pilgrims to come into Jerusalem, knowing that it would only exhaust the food and water supply of the city itself. And he he lets them all migrate in, but he doesn't let anyone out when he besieges it in April. Again, this is Passover time. Well, it takes about four months. It takes us about August of 70 AD when Titus decides to go ahead and storm the city and take over Jerusalem again. Remember that the Jews had been expelled from, I mean, the Romans had been expelled by the Jews um, from Jerusalem. And so now they're storming to take back over the city and Titus has had enough. He decides to destroy the second temple. He decides to create a atmosphere of, of intense persecution. And so it is. Now, from the 13th century mindset, this would be sort of the medieval, historical, symbolic mindset. You begin to see this coming up in the book, uh, the De Marcaria, that's written by Dante. And what he writes is, is something that's really unique that I've never read before. And he starts talking about this idea of vengeance on the vengeance, that somehow the act of the death of Christ is the vengeance of God on sin itself, the sin that resides in mankind, in order to set us right with God, but also that it's also vengeance that the Jews perpetuated through the hands of the Roman army on Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a double vengeance there. And what, what Dante writes in the 13th century is something that 14th century, I guess, technically, is something about this idea that it was a holy thing that Titus came through there and destroyed the second temple and took back Jerusalem, that he had vengeance on those who had vengeance on Christ, which is quite ironic. It's quite, we're beginning to get into this paradoxical type of mindset here, because the idea of the Romans being the actual hand of God on the earth, which is something that the medievals in the Roman Empire very much believed that that the the Roman Empire and the church were both set apart to to glorify God. Now, this is obviously when I say the church, I'm talking about the Catholic Church, that this is something that is that is unique. It's very, very unique. And so what he writes is it's also something that that is interesting. Remember, the, the, the Catholics have this way about that, that the the church, the Catholic Church is set apart because Peter was the rock and Christ says that Peter used to be the rock of my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and it has this Mariology that's built into that. It has this, this unique um, non-sola scriptura type of perspective on the, the view of Christ and the scripture also being able to be interpreted by the papal authority, which is really unique. But also... He gives authority to the Roman Empire. He gives divine authority to the Roman Empire. Why is this? He, his argument goes something like this, that, that Christ chose to be born inside the Roman Empire, that it was a dignity to the Roman Empire by Christ being born as a part and inside the Roman Empire. That's, that's point number one that, that he makes. Point number two that he makes is that Christ being chosen, being allowed to become a 
person who's counted in the census of the Roman Empire. Remember, he's counted in the census like at his birth. He, he, Joseph and Mary are traveling to Bethlehem, so they may be counted for the census. That His argument is that Christ has done a divine favor to the Roman Empire by agreeing to be counted as one of them. And so this, in a way, begins to sanctify the Roman Empire and show that it is set forth, it's set apart from all the other empires and institutions of the world. And so from the 12th to 13th century mindset, this medieval mindset, we have this idea that the Roman Empire is the divine hand that effectuates justice. But then you also have this point number three, that Christ allows the Roman Empire to execute him as a act of, I guess, an act of honor, an act of showing the, the uniformity and the universality of the Roman Empire. And that which is universal is also, by definition, just in the medieval mindset. And so you have the Roman Empire is put forth as not only a universal organization, a universal model of glory, but also this this idea of it being just, that it is the ex- executor of justice. And of course, you go on and you hear about Justinian, Justinian uh, being the the procurator of justice itself, of law itself, the writer and the simplifier of law. Now, so we find these three great theoretical blessings on the Roman Empire by Christ. Number one, being born inside the Roman Empire. Number two, being being willing to be counted as citizen in their census of the Roman Empire. And number three, by allowing the Romans to actually crucify him, although it is that not the will of the of the Roman Empire that crucified him, but the will of the Jews. Now, it said that Christ was crucified in order to have allow the Father had vengeance on the sin of humanity through him. He, he Christ, as the, the representative of humanity, takes on the sin of the world, sin of mankind, and through death destroys sin. Because only through sin comes death. Death is the, the child of the sin in the words of Milton. So we have this idea at play where God's vengeance on Christ is perpetuated by the vengeance of the Jews through the hands of the Romans on Christ himself. It's a it's a double vengeance. This is where we begin to get to this this idea of paradoxology. You have this idea of the the alignment of not only the the moral paradoxes but also of the the historical paradoxes that you look at one may look at through the historical lens and also the moral lens the same event and see two different paradoxes. And this is what he's calling on the, in the Demarcaria this idea of vengeance on the vengeance, this great paradox. So, so how do we how do we use this? How do we interpret this in our daily lives? I think one of the things we do is we look at non secular, we look at non religious types of institutions and see that do paradoxes really play a role in that? I think they do. I think they do. I think a, a business would be a good good example that the classical business strategy is to specialize. It's only through specialization that you gain institutional knowledge. Uh, that's that's broadly disseminated among a team of specialists. And specialists can only do things in a certain way. And specialists, by their very nature, not only work faster, they're more efficient, which means they're, they're highly profitable whenever they have enough workload, but also they're able to do a better job. The quality increases. So you get speed and quality increases through specialization. But the only way you get specialization is if your business isn't doing everything, right? You don't want to have the same business making hamburgers and also building spacecraft and also cleaning toilets. It's just not aligned. So you have a specialty. 
You work within a specific industry, a specific service, a specific product, and that's how you effectuate your change in the world as an organization, but you specialize in one more thing and one, one specific thing. And once you execute that specific thing, then you may add a little bit more. There may be a, a tweak on that where you're able to go and, and gain other market share and corollary industries. And this is, this is one way that paradoxes work and that specialization is what leads to growth, not, not generalization. You don't go out and, and offer a hundred different products. You offer one product extremely well, extremely efficiently, and at a better price point, at least a better value point. And so that's one time when paradoxes align in the actual real world, so to say. And I think it's interesting to to note also that whenever we think about the idea of paradox, we think of we think of contrarian natures. We think of the nature of the seed. We talked about this last time that the seed must die must fall to the ground and die and be bared if it ever to be able to grow and produce a tree, which then produces infinite numbers of seed. But it must die first. This idea of life only coming through death, that is a that is a great paradox. It's not only true that it's bad to die, but it's also good to die. This is this is a little bit what Bohr's talking about in this idea of there may be profound truth and the opposite of that profound truth also being yet another, maybe a higher profound truth. And so hopefully that gives you an idea about how paradoxes work.